Hello and welcome to Complexity Unpacked. Today's episode unpacks some of the challenges police face when dealing with domestic violence calls for service. And I'm joined by retired detective Tracy Marshall. To contextualize our interview today, let me start by saying domestic violence occurs across all social demographics. No matter race, age, income level, education, or your geography, domestic violence can and does happen everywhere. While some victims come forward and report these crimes, or concerned citizens make the call, there are many more instances of domestic violence that go unreported for a whole variety of reasons. The most recent statistics in Canada from police reporting data is from 2019, and shows that although men are also experiencing victimization of domestic violence, women are more commonly victims, and perpetrators are more commonly men. Out of 358,244 victims of police-reported violence in Canada in 2019, 30% or 107,810 were victims of specifically domestic violence committed by a current or past intimate partner. Out of that 107,810 events reported to police across the country, 36% were committed by a current boyfriend or girlfriend. 29% by a spouse, 20% an ex-girlfriend or boyfriend, and 12% by an ex-spouse. Also, importantly, of that 107,810 victims I just mentioned, 79% were female victims, regardless of the type of intimate relationship they were in. There was a 10% increase in reporting of male victims of domestic violence crimes and 5% increase of female victims from the previous year. For men, this represents a 14% increase in their victimization over the previous five years. Intimate partner or domestic violence, as it is interchangeably called, also at times leads to intimate partner homicide. Between 2014 and 2019, there were 497 victims of this type of crime, of which eight out of 10 were female victims. In Canada, Manitoba and Saskatchewan have the highest rates of domestic violence, while Ontario and PEI had the lowest rates. Keep in mind, however, this does not account for the dark figure of crime, crimes that are not reported, but widely accepted as occurring behind the scenes. This data and these numbers only speak to the events that have had police attendance, and not the number of instances that have gone unreported. The actual prevalence rate we do not know but academics and professionals argue it's considerably higher. In rural areas, this crime is 1.8 times higher than in urban areas, regardless of the gender of the victim. So why am I telling you all of this? Domestic violence can be a silent crime and a silent killer, happening in the home and away from prying eyes. The victims are not always easy to spot, but nor are the offenders. The underreporting of this crime means that there are many victims in need of help, and the only way to get them the help they need is to increase the rate at which these crimes are reported. To address this sensitive crime, some police forces have created specialized departments to work these events. So, to unpack the complexity of all of this, I'd like to bring on Tracy Marshall. Today, Tracy is the president of Threat Management Matters, Inc., but she's a retired police officer 
with the rank of detective, with 20 years of experience between Toronto Police Service and Durham Regional Police Service. She was a detective in the Threat Assessment Unit and has specialized training in violence risk and threat assessment. She completed an understudy program in the Behavioral Sciences section with the Ontario Provincial Police Service. And she was qualified as an expert witness in the Ontario Court of Justice. This incredible woman has experience with investigations in sexual violence, domestic violence, workplace violence, criminal harassment, and the list goes on. Welcome, Tracy, and thank you for agreeing to be a guest on my podcast as we attempt to shed some light on what is likely a complex and interesting subject. Let's take a look at this from a policing perspective, and let's discuss how the police deal with calls for service to domestic violence and deal with this issue head-on in their everyday work life. All right, so welcome, Tracy, and thank you for being here again. I know you've had a long and extensive career in policing, and I'm hoping that today we can unpack a little bit about the complexities that are involved in domestic violence investigations, the challenges with policing those occurrences, and sort of your learned experience. So welcome to Complexity Unpacked. And why don't we just start by a quick sort of, give us a quick sense of the career you've had and what you're doing now. Wow. So complexity, I think, is a great um, word to describe what I've done. Um, I started off, I'll just give you a little bit of background. Before I became a police officer, I was a customs agent at CBSA at the airport in Toronto. So I started thinking about a law enforcement career. I went to University of Toronto for criminology. I have my BA in criminology not knowing if I'd be interested in or able to be a police officer. I think I was probably um, nervous and didn't think that I could do it. So I had a, we'll maybe talk about that later as well as this perception of policing and what I thought it was like. And was I going to cut the mustard? Was I going to be able to pass the physical? That was my, that was my barrier, not the academic, but the physical part of it. And um, so in 1987, I joined in um, the Toronto Police Service as a civilian, which I think might be a great recommendation for any of your students who are interested in, but not quite sure where they want to go. Um, and I was a dispatcher for a year, so I was a 911 call taker. And my first phone call was, my baby's in the bathtub and it's drowning and it's blue. That was my very first phone call. <laughs> so I think that's a good, you know, that's complexity for you right there. You know, kind of that the rush of adrenaline, the fear for the baby, the, the not knowing if I'm going to push the right button. Um, I pushed the right buttons and not knowing if the people are going to get there in time. Um, and the kindness of the police officer that actually did get there in time and phoned me back later to say that they'd revive the baby. So um, these, you know, that's one tiny snippet of the calls and the experience in policing that we'll talk about a little bit further. But certainly complexity is a great word for it. And I started off in that civilian line and I was magnetized. The more I knew about it, the more I knew I wanted to join as a police officer. Well, talk about trial by fire. That's quite the first call. And yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I imagine that it has value to start out hot, but sometimes that can be discouraging and it takes a special kind of person to be able to stay with it. Uh, you know, I'm going to pivot right off the top because while I imagined we'd be talking about your primary role, I, I do want to touch on that. I think there's tremendous value uh, in having experience in the comm center. Uh, it gives you an appreciation mm -hmm. for what goes on on the back end. And sometimes officers will tell you that 
the frustrations they feel with dispatch usually are born out of not understanding that role. Would you like to expand on that a little bit? Because I think those two roles really do have to work well together. Yeah, I mean, the dispatcher is your lifeline. If you're on the front line as a police officer and you need help, the dispatcher is the one that's going to get the help to you. So you really need to have a respect for that role. Um, that is a highly complex role. In 1987, um, we were at 590 Jarvis Street, which was the old headquarters in Toronto, and we were transitioning over to 40 College. And um, we used to do our calls when the computer went down. We would have to write it on a ticket, and it would go through a conveyor belt. Uh, talk mm-hmm. about the old old days, right? So then they created this CAD system. Everything became more automated. But the calls for service, I was a dispatcher one night, I'll recall a Saturday night, and I had 41, 42, and 43, which is all of Scarborough. Right. And my calls for service kept coming in, and I couldn't even see the second and third screen of calls. So you talk about, you know, overwhelming, and you have your ears on the computer and the regular police radios. But then police officers always have a miter, right? Their handheld radio. And if they're out on foot and they're in a foot pursuit or something, they're yelling and running and you have to be the one to say, did he say, you know, Kingston Road or right? What number is he at? Where is he going? What's his direction of travel? And how am I going to get officers there to support the officer that's needing assistance? So that's it's a very symbiotic relationship that exists between the officers on the front line on the road and the dispatchers that help connect and be the eyes and ears of everything they can and cannot see out there. So, uh, you know, as an aside, when I was in the private sector, I always made our road staff go and spend a couple of shifts in dispatch just because it gave them a whole new appreciation for the amount of calls they were coordinating and all the back-end stuff that allows frontline police officers and security people and uh, law enforcement people in general to do the job they do. So that's a little little special shout-out to all those dispatchers that are out there. Absolutely. a very, very important part. So policing in 87, I know you weren't in a uniform position initially, but uh, I know they only started keeping gender statistics on policing in 86. Um, And at that time, there was only 4%, uh, a 4% representation of women in policing. So can we talk a little bit about that, those early experiences? Um, Because you would have been Mm -hmm. a part of a very small cohort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, my first Hmm, let me think. I started in 52 Division, downtown Toronto. Uh, and I would say that was fairly well represented by women. Um, and then I went to Scarborough and I was one of three police officers on my platoon. Um, so that would mean there was probably 25, ma- 25 male police officers and then the three of us. Um, and my, my partner at the time, um, she and I would get called shopping cart 41. That was what, <laughs> that was what. But you know what? It was all in fun. Like we we've had a lot of we we were hardworking police officers, and um, you know it, that really didn't for me become such a huge issue. If if you were a weak police officer, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, how tall, how short. It doesn't that doesn't matter. What your partners want to see is that you're a a willing participant. If something needs to be done, that you're going to jump and do it. You're not going the other way. So I think, you know, at the beginning, you do have, certainly on the front line, I think it's easier to be female. I think in leadership, it's harder to be female. And we can talk about that, baby. I think there's the distinction there. But once your platoon knows that you're one of the platoon, then that, the gender issue blurs away. And I think, in fact, there's a, a real appreciation for 
a partnership with a male and female partner right. um, because, you know, some men want to talk to women, some women want to talk to men and having one of each, um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way, but certainly it's worked in, in quite a few instances where, you know, there's a different appeal sometimes. Right. Um, and I know when I was working in the sexual assault squad, we always had one male, one female responding to the, the calls. So just to get the best of both worlds, well, well, I mean, I, and I think that I think we'll be talking about that at some point, but I think that has a big impact when we talk about representative police, it has a big impact on when you're dealing with the public. And there are times and places where people do have preferences and their preferences do speak to their comfort with talking to police. And, you know, uh, we do a better job when we reach the needs of the people we're serving, I think. So, you know, Absolutely. I think yeah. uh, we're not there yet. I know across Canada, we're only sitting at around 22%, but we're making steps in the right direction. And, you know, I, I hope that uh, students listening are encouraged to participate and look at this as a true opportunity, regardless of gender. And that, yeah, you know, don't always let comes, that stop you. Yeah, it don't comes let back that to stop you. being a whole person, right? Which is more than just the sum of your parts. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, excellent. Listen, I know you've already sort of brought up here and the focus today was domestic violence. And I, you heard me mention in my intro some of the key statistics. So let's, uh, let's take a look at that and let's talk about uh, your experiences with policing um, and dealing with domestic violence. So what can you tell us a little bit about your experiences there broadly? So I started in uh, September of, I'm going to say I went to 41 Division in September of 89. Uh, I worked in 52, like I said, but very few people lived downtown Toronto at that time. So I didn't really have very much experience with domestics there. But certainly in 41 Division, um, large residential communities and lots, lots, lots of apartment buildings. And that became sort of, that was 40% of our calls. So a massive amount of calls for service for frontline police officers are intimate partner violence calls and the related damage to property, criminal harassment, sexual violence calls that, that seem to, you know, child abuse calls. They're all sort of intermingled in there. You gave statistics from the um, Domestic Violence Death Review Committee report. So every year in Ontario, we have a huge panel that does a massive report about women, children and men that have been killed. Um, and we shouldn't have to do that report every year. You know, what we know about domestic violence is enough, I think, that we should be able to um, be able to reduce it. So when I first started, I really had no idea. I think I was 20, maybe 23 at that time, 20, 23, 25, maybe when I first started. Very little life experience, very little experience dealing with the complex issues of intimate partner violence. And I really had this simplistic mindset that I'll go in, I'll offer a shelter, we'll get the kids toys and off she goes to shelter. And that's right. that she'll leave him. And, uh, you know, as we as we know, it does not happen like that. So I feel like, you know, now I'm, this is 30 years on 32 years on. And um, I don't know anyone that could call themselves the domestic violence expert, because we are no better now at reducing homicides um, than we were back then. Um, really nothing has changed. There's a great McLean's article that was written about how we've put lots more money to it, but we're not able mm -hmm. to do any better at resolving the issues. 
So investment is two parts, right? I mean, you need the resources from your service and government and so on, but you also need attitudinal adjustments from the people dealing every day uh, with these with these type of uh, calls. I found it really interesting there. So I think a lot of my students uh, who, and I, I don't mean to disparage them, but we get a lot of information from popular media. And so there's this conception that you always have a specialized unit, a special victims unit that's dealing exclusively with these things. But you just mentioned about 40% of the regular calls for service taken by a radio car was a domestic violence um, yeah. occurrence. Yeah. How important is it that all these, all our new students are aspiring to be police officers, the new officers getting on the job, get familiar and get right with the importance of dealing with these type of calls and how are they different than other calls perhaps? Oh, it's huge. I mean, to go in like I did, I really, I had great coach officers, obviously, that's key, right? So learn from your coach officers, if they are attuned to intimate partner violence, which some are and some aren't. So if you can go in yourself, having a better understanding of what it actually is, um, and how it impacts people and why these are the cases where police officers get killed, Right. So this is a, a danger issue. This is a safety issue. If you're going to be a police officer to understand that people are losing everything or their perception is they might be losing their kids, the person they love, their home, their job, their you know family recognition, they can be losing everything. And when the police show up, you know, that's where kind of everything is you know, before police arrival and then after police arrival, because we have a mandatory charge policy. People know that now. And that's sometimes where they will choose to attack the police officer in order to say, well, I'm losing everything anyway. I have nothing else to lose. So I might as well um, attack you. Right. So, I mean, one of the well-known statistics, or well, I, should, I shouldn't say that, I make a lot of assumptions sometimes in the questions I ask about knowledge base. So let me try and back up a little bit. There is um, documentation and research and evidence and police perspectives that have been shared that suggest that domestic violence calls, when you're inside somebody's house, present a great deal of danger to the officers responding. Uh, for one, the familiarity of the environment that the people are in. Uh, the knowledge of where things are in the house. So can you speak to some of the risks of going into somebody's house and dealing with a volatile emotional state? I think that's yeah. before we can even discuss domestic violence from an officer's perspective, that's one of the first things you're encountering. You're inside someone else's space. And I imagine that gives you a loss of control really of your environment. So yeah, I like? have a great example that comes to mind. So we had a call, um, a male partner and I, we had a call um, and we went and the, the husband had left. And so we just spoke to the wife <clears throat> and in the bedroom, there was a massive queen size bed that had been thrown up against the wall with her on it. So we thought, oh, you know, this guy has a little bit of strength, right? And he's not here, few. So we took our information from her and we left and then got a call a short time later that he was back. So back we go. And this is a case where for me, I think being female was a real strength in this or being having a softer approach, not being female necessarily, but having a different approach, which I think a, a great police officer, male or female, right, needs to learn that this strong, um, overbearing, bullying kind of new uh, of perception has to go. That's got to go from policing. That's that's no good. That doesn't help. We can talk about that later, too. But this this man was about six foot eight. Um, and when he stood in front of the refrigerator, you couldn't see the refrigerator. 
uh, very small kitchen. He knew where everything was in that house. And my partner and I, I'm five seven. My partner was probably six two. Um, and this guy could have made us just mincemeat, right? So as we're talking to him, we're clearing the knives that are on the countertop behind us, right? So you're starting right. to think about, you know, you have to be on your feet and thinking, I'm backed into this tiny kitchen. He's bigger than the doorway. I can't get past him. I can't get through him. I can't get under him or over him. Right. So I'm going to have to talk to him. <laughs> so I'm thinking, hmm, this is this is bad. So I said, we, we've come here and we've talked to your girlfriend or wife and she loves you very much. And she's devastated that this is happening in your relationship. And he puts his head down. And after a while, I just keep talking about how you know difficult this is. And he starts to cry. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry, but we have to take you into the station and we're going to have to talk about this. And he says, I understand. And I said, and I hope you understand that everybody that goes into the back of my police car has to have handcuffs on. He says, I understand. And he turned around and I got one handcuff on him and I got one click on the second handcuff and he just went and you could feel him just, he knew then that he was in handcuffs and he said, if you want me to go in the back of that police car, you're going to have to shoot me. So, there is a there's a psychological use of force instructors will tell you there's a psychological impact that happens when that cuff tightens and so you know yes. that's really what you're speaking to and that's and part of the human one condition. click mm-hmm. one click because his wrist was you know sure huge so we got one click on and we took him out to the police car and managed to put his head head first on the seat pull him through and get him in the back but mm-hmm. I firmly believe that had we not that would have been probably the worst fight I've ever been in in my life and he would have won, yeah. you know, short of yeah. it, short of a, a huge escalation of force. So I think in that case, you know, his, the reality for him was that everything was absolutely ter- terrible. Um, and, you know, he, I mean, any of us who've lost the love of our lives is going to be despondent. Uh, but people who are prone to violence and losing the love of their life, that's mm-hmm. when those two worlds collide for the, for the police officers. And, um, yeah, it can turn really, really ugly quick. Well, that's a lot to unpack in our very first opening segment. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about mandatory charges and policies that are intended to help and sometimes don't always go that way, but we'll talk about some of the nuances there. We're going to talk a little bit about officer bias and perception and the tactical considerations that have to be kept in mind while trying to be uh, empathetic. But we'll be right back with Tracy Marshall in a moment. All right, we're back with Tracy Marshall, and we were just talking about some of the uh, challenges that police encounter dealing with uh, investigations or call for services. Actually, we haven't gotten to investigations yet, but we were talking about calls for service, how common they are, and some of the nuances and challenges that come up with it. So, Tracy, I'd like to pivot to this in this next segment. I want to talk a little bit about mandatory policies, uh, because a lot of these policies are intended to assist and be more efficient. But I'm sure that, you know, there are multiple perspectives on whether mandatory rules work in a situation that is so complex and so different and unique from call to call. So can you tell us a little bit about giving you give my audience a perspective or an understanding? What do you mean when you're talking about mandatory charges and what is that policy intended to do? And what does that do? I know this is a three part question. How does that impact your ability to use police discretion? Okay, so I'm going to go back in history to the old days when 
when I started policing, we would go to a call. And like that call I was just speaking about in the first segment, the, um, the complainant or the victim or the survivor, the woman typically, was asked, do you want charges laid in this case? And usually by the time the police have come and he may be contrite or he may have left for the day, she has time to think, hmm, this isn't really what I want. I love the guy or whatever, you know, I want to give him another chance. I don't want to be the one to mess things up. So I don't want charges laid. And that was her choice. So if she didn't want charges laid back in the day, then she signed our notebook, no charges laid. We tell him, go sleep at your mom and daddy's, go sleep at your brother's, whatever. And, uh, you know, if we come back here tonight, somebody's going to get arrested. And um, that wasn't working. (laughs) Um, Really. Sorry to interrupt you. Sorry. Uh, You just bring up a really valid point. Is that not working because there was a lack of understanding on law enforcement's part about how the cycle of victimization occurs, the fear that might be a part of that decision-making process? Or like, can, can you explain? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so it wasn't working because um, I think even though the police might have had a really good understanding that this is going to happen again, that this is a cycle of violence, that it's probably already happened 30 times before we're called. I mean, that's the reality. It happens. Uh, This is is, um, a serial offense, right? This is one of those offenses that is a serial offense, which is, I think, why we need to take it so seriously. It's not like a bar fight where somebody is hurt in a bar. This is happening week after week, month after month, year after year, same victim, same offender. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those that should be really easy to predict and prevent. But um, I think we knew it would keep going on, but without the victim's compliance or without the victim's complaint, we had nothing lawfully to do. We couldn't do anything. And that was creating what we've heard as described a, um, um, a bullseye on the victim. So if the victim said, yes, I do want to lay charges, then the offender would say, you're the one who lay charges. You're the one who's going to have to go to the Crown to get those charges revoked. And if you don't, I will X, right? So it it became, that's why mandatory charging came into effect, is that women were being killed. Um, We realized through statistics that just by being arrested alone, many men desist from repeating domestic violence not by being convicted in court just by the arrest alone right so the mandatory charging policy means now that if the police officer has reasonable grounds to believe um that uh, an assault has taken place or the criminal harassment has taken place they must lay the charge so the victim or the the complainant may say i'm not going to tell you anything um Mm -hmm. my husband and i were both home nothing happened But if you can find a witness, you know, the neighbor or interview a child and you have enough um, grounds to believe that this happened, you must lay a criminal charge. So it doesn't mean that every criminal, every call for service results in an arrest. It just means Mm -hmm. we need to do an investigation. And if we have reasonable grounds, we must. So it's not putting the responsibility on the victim. It's putting it on law enforcement to find that that evidence. Because that would disproportionately put the onus on the victim to be the primary driver in that previous circumstance. So uh, I think yeah. that in many ways, a mandatory charge policy perhaps moves that onus and uh, and shifts that, you know, that focal point, if you will, of what the perpetrator is viewing as the person enacting the next step. Right. And I think right. that, which is that has maybe gotten- why they're 
maybe that's why they're so angry at the police, but it's better that they're angry at us sure. than at the victim. And, um, you know, um, retroactive interviews with victims, um, they say, well, at the time, I didn't want charges laid. I didn't want to call the police. The police came because my neighbor called. But in hindsight, it saved my life. It was the best thing. So we know at the time there might be resistance um, from the victim's perspective to have charges laid. But if we truly want to save lives, there are those times where we need to charge and we need to proceed despite what the victim thinks is best in the circumstances. And reasonable grounds is not, I mean, you know, reasonable suspicion is not actually that simple, right? Because you don't always have physical evidence. Uh, I imagine witnesses would be hard to come by, even if you're hearing it, it doesn't give you enough to know. Um, so that's got to be a complicated one, uh, especially yeah. when things are not obvious, right? Uh, there's no obvious physical uh, evidence of what has just transpired. I, I imagine that must be hard. It is. And sometimes you have, uh, unfortunately, people who've been victimized time and again may be um, prepared to make up a story to hide the fact that they have a broken cheekbone. So we can have very you know, serious injuries. And then we also have people that are very adept at telling a story that explains that away. So our reasonable grounds to believe, um, yeah, it, it can be quite a high bar. And unfortunately, we know that this has happened time and time again, and it will continue to happen if we can't intervene. So, you know, sometimes walking away and knowing you're leaving somebody in that in that state is very, very frustrating. And that's where the system, um, you know, kind of you have to have that control so that police mm -hmm. aren't able to arrest people without reasonable grounds. But at the mm -hmm. same time, you know, some some cases you're leaving somebody in a high risk situation. So. That's so difficult. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about both sides of discretion here, because while discretion is a necessary part of policing, uh, it's not as simple as it, it is as simple as it sounds when you present it in a classroom. Right. So talk a little bit about discretion. You're, you're at a call. You're dealing with a complex range of circumstances. You know um, the complexity of just from the victim's perspective of being able to navigate this. You're going to leave and he or she is still going to remain there and they have to deal with that. And it's not always as simple as others think because they're living with this. Uh, it's intimate. And I think that's why intimate partner violence actually does a better job of, of capturing what we're dealing with than just domestic. You know, it's, there's a level of complexity when it's people you love that are also the source of your pain. How yeah. does that influence your discretion? Yeah. Um, well, and I think in, I don't know, I'm going to say 60% of these cases, there's kids in the home too, right? So that's a completely different, and pets, right? I'm an animal lover. And when you see somebody who's, you know, potentially a risk to pets or kids or their intimate partner who they love or their intimate partner's new boyfriend and he may live down the road and she just put it on Facebook that she's now dating somebody else, right? It's not her fault that she put it on Facebook, but it's right. given her ex-partner um, fuel, for, for the fire. So yeah, it's very hard. I mean, when we don't, I think it's taken a, I think it's been helpful for police to remove that discretionary um, power as far as domestics go. So if you have what used to be RPG, which, which is now reasonable grounds, if you have reasonable grounds, you must, so you do. And that relieves some, um, you know, there, every case you leave feeling like, oh, 
Did I do the right thing? Um, what if this? What if that? And you just have to do the best you can with what you have and walk away. And sometimes that keeps you up at night. So on balance, it sounds like you're saying mandatory charging has tremendous value. Is there a downside? Is there? Can you think of a limitation or a con? There are some community groups that really want to leave the decision-making with the woman um, because everyone has a right to autonomy and that's a good thing. But what we know is that women who are at risk of being murdered aren't very good at identifying if they're at risk of being murdered. And so we have to take that autonomy away in those cases. So um, it's about 50%. So women who um, have been interviewed have been um, nearly killed or their proxies were interviewed when they had been killed and only 50% of them predicted that they were at risk of being murdered. So, you know, I think when you're in a, an intimate partner relationship, your emotions are involved. You've known buddy forever. He's never killed you before. He only has to kill you once. And it's really hard to figure out if he's the one that's going to, and nobody expects it and everybody's surprised. It's similar with suicide. You know, people see signs and um, they, they worry about it and they think about it. It doesn't happen every time, but when it does, we think, Oh gee, I saw the signs and symptoms and you know, It'll never happen to me, right? It's not, it's not me. And that's like, uh, you know, we, we know too often that that is famous last words, uh, not, not me. So challenging. So those are really challenging. And, uh, yeah, we, we do go back to the same houses again and again and again. Um, and that's where I think, you know, we need to work smarter, not harder with the same budget. I think the budget is there as far as making changes. I think systemically, big changes are possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we can talk about that whenever you like, but I think sure. that um, community collaboration and attitudes, changing attitudes, getting to the root of these, you know, really, I would, I would sum this up in two words and that's sexual jealousy, um, intimate partner violence, the difference between roommates. So you have two roommates to live on Dalhousie Mm-hmm. Um, going to school together and they decide that they're going to move out. Well, one rarely ever kills the other one, right? Because right. they've, they've stopped that domestic um, sharing of the domicile. Mm-hmm. But the difference is when there's an intimate partnership, a sexual connection, that sexual jealousy, sexual jealousy is all about, I want to see your phone when you come home from going out. You can't wear that. Um, right. I'm going to pick you up at lunch and drop you back off at lunch. And if you fill in the rest of the sentence, the rest of the sentence is, because I think you're going to go sleep with somebody else, right? right. That's yep. sexual jealousy. I gave you $10. I want to see the receipt and right. the milk when you come home. That's sexual jealousy. It's not about the milk. It's right. about power. But the right. ultimate power is in order to stop her from having sex with another guy. Really, it's yeah. sexual jealousy. And and that that and a big part of that is control, right? And we're, we'll yep. we'll come we'll come back to this topic uh, in a bit. Uh, I do I do want to talk about attitudinal sort of um, dispositions at cults, and uh, we'll explore that I think next. 
So Tracy, I have attended several conferences and read a lot about this stuff. And I, one of the people I've really appreciated reading and hearing from is uh, a speaker named Jackson Katz. I think you're quite familiar with him. Uh, and I'll just focus on one line that has always stuck out with me uh, at a presentation I heard him give. And he said, sexual violence and violence against women. And when we phrase them that way, we make it almost sound like a gendered issue, like this is a women's issue. And he really stresses the point that it's not, it's everybody's issue and we all have a role to play. So can you speak a little bit about that from your experience? Is this a woman's issue? Why should men care? And, and why is this everyone's issue? Well, it is um, violence against women committed by men. That's the issue. So, you know, you're only getting part of the story when we think about violence against women. The, it really should be called violence by men. Um, with sexual violence, criminal harassment. I mean, we have female offenders, absolutely. We have same-sex um, relationships that end in homicide. We have, you know, female-female, male-male, female-male relationships that end in homicide. Um, but predominantly, your statistic earlier, you know, eight out of 10, um, when, when we're talking about actually bodies in the morgue, that doesn't lie, right? That tells the story. So we know that we have male victims, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. And so, I mean, and it's all wrong. It's all terrible. Um, but if we're thinking about the kind of the underlying messaging here, why does this keep happening to women? It is gender-based violence, right? It is specifically from men to mm -hmm. women. And I think to say violence against women misses the message that it's violence by men right. and it's not violence by all men. And that's why I think it's a male issue because um, men have moms. <laughs> Most men have a mom, <laughs> if not all. If not all. Um, yeah. men, have, <laughs> men have sisters, men have aunts, men have neighbors, men have women that they love. And so when, you know, I think it's almost like, for me to meet a female police officer that is not a very good female police officer, I get offended because I want female police officers to be seen in a good light. And I want men to hold other men accountable when their behavior is so terrible. And it's a very small proportion of men, but they do such, they create such devastation in our community, repeat and repeat and repeat devastation in our community. So, you know, what has happened? What has made that seem like that's a good idea for these particular men? And how can the rest of our society, men and women, say this is not acceptable? But I know when I do trainings, when I um, do any kind of sort of advocacy, it's, it's a female audience. That audience of caregivers for victims of violence are predominantly, I'd say, 95, 96% women. I can't remember the if you were... Are Sorry, I, I was just saying, I can't remember if you and I were at that conference together, but I do remember sitting at that conference, looking around, saying, where are the men? And yeah. there weren't a lot of them. Um, and there were uh, there were some police officers at that conference, mm -hmm. and yet not a lot of male police officers at that conference. So, you know, I think we have some growing to do, and I think that issues like this need to be discussed. And I don't know, I'll go out on a limb and say, we need more male faculty and more male trainers talking about these two male classes, because otherwise we make it a women's studies issue. And I think that does more harm than good. Uh, you know, we, we definitely need to sort of change the attitude on this. So let me pivot then, because um, this is not intended to be harsh, but representative. Uh, I've heard 
many a person say, and some anecdotally, and there is some evidence to this as well uh, from research, that sometimes the first call for service, the first call made by the woman, uh, by a woman, um, actually has a deterrent value because they're not being treated or they're feeling like they're being re-victimized to a certain extent by the interaction. Uh, they're being questioned. And some of those reporting in qualitative data suggests that the female caller uh, then doesn't feel like the police uh, interrogation is how they often they describe being interrogated, questioned about their victimhood. And that really discourages them from making a second phone call when they might need to. Can you speak a little bit about that police interaction and that importance of dealing with uh, the person that you're dealing with? Yes. So you get one opportunity, right? You only get, what is it? You get one chance to make a first impression or you don't get the second chance to make a first impression. Right. And if you're representing um, a police service, you need to realize that it's probably not, the, well, very unlikely that that's the first time that this has happened in the family home. So you're only seeing, I mean, we only go to probably 25% of all the incidents of domestic violence. So for us to be at a house where somebody has had or made a phone call, we need to um, make that a good experience as much as possible for that person. And we have some officers that are great. You know, the officers that I have worked with on the whole are fantastic, lovely, caring people. And our victims would call back, right? If we couldn't fix it the first time, I think they, they would call back. Um, there is the whole other justice system issue, which I feel like, you know, that's a, another aspect of revictimization. But um, there are some people that go and they really don't care. And they really, you know, frankly, may be committing domestic violence in their own home. So, you know, that's not the person that you want going to the, the call for service. Um, we have made changes in policing. There are adequacy standards that say that um, police officers have to have more of a minimum understanding now, 40 hours of training at police college, and um, I think it's 40 around domestic violence. That sounds like an awful lot. Maybe it's not that much. Um, but you either need to have a sergeant that is domestic violence trained or a domestic violence unit. So every police agency now has to have one of those three models in place. So there is a higher standard of training out there, but still I feel like it's such a complex issue and you're not going to get a real understanding of it within the first couple of years. So we need to do better at making sure that that first call for service um, is a, is as good an experience as it can be. And the interrogation, the interrogation piece, I feel like only in the last few years have we really started to understand how, victimization impacts our ability to give a really beautiful police statement, right? So a police statement, we like it very linear. Tell me what happened on, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And if you get it all jumbled up, it means that you're not a very trustworthy right. uh, witness. That's the old way of thinking. Right. And now we know that if it is jumbled up, it actually gives credence to the fact that they have been victims of violence because right. that's how our memory takes information and mixes it all around. So now we can use that kind of um, jumbled or disconnected or disjointed statement to actually speak to the credibility of the mm -hmm. victim statement. Whereas in the past, I think um, policing would have looked down on that and then that would have reduced the experience for the complainant because they would have been, it would have felt like they weren't being believed and it was an interrogation. 
Well, there's an intersection between, um, you know, research-based knowledge and, and things we learn from, the, from looking at generalized large numbers of victim statements and things like that, and the frontline day-to-day interaction. And those things don't always work well, and sometimes there's resistance, but there is value because, I mean, I don't think anyone disputes anymore that uh, jumbled statements are actually more reflective of the emotional state of dealing with something that is complicated. We don't tend to think in linear ways. We definitely don't tend to speak in linear ways. And in many cases, that's a learned trait that those of us that work in academia or work in law enforcement have developed over time. But that's filtering and that's not accounting for that real emotional experience that's occurring. So I'm going to come back to your earlier point. You said 40 call, 40% of calls for service. Let's, let's assume that the number is high. I think that's just fair for the purpose of this question which means you aren't getting specialized training you're getting a baseline level of training like you do for everything and there's a lot of expectations on police officers how important is attitude for young police officers coming in uh and i know i'm asking you very long questions tracy but i'm trying to contextualize this a little way i have talked in, with my students who you know the age demographic they're fairly young i said it can be intimidating to go to a home for example where the people you're dealing with are 20 years older than you significantly more life experience than you. You perhaps have not been married or you have not been in that circumstance. Is it easy to find yourself going, okay, but was it a little disagreement that got a little out of hand and you diminish what is being said there? Can you speak about that real dynamic in a way that I think young people might sort of imagine themselves being there? Mm -hmm. And I think um, that mindset gets clarified or jarred fairly quickly when you go to such a disparity of calls and I mean your first domestic that you go to and she's gone to the hospital and you know there's blood everywhere and you know people like that really and you really think like okay this is really bad right so um, I think that opens your eyes to the possibility of what's happened in homes before we get there. When we get there, it, it can look very calm and everybody is very, you know, um, they don't want police involvement, right? Nobody wants to have police involvement um, necessarily. But when you, so when you separate people, um, you know, you really have to, be open-minded as to what's happened here and, and leave your own judgment and your own experience at home. You know, people who have no experience with domestic violence can be just as good a, an investigator as people who have, you know, seen a lot. It's just really not having an expectation of what you grew up with. You might have grown up with, you know, a very loving, peaceful family and not really have an understanding. But just read the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee report, right? These women are dying in Ontario. I think we have had 34 this year in Ontario. Ontario is not that big a place. So I think you have to drop your own belief system. Mm -hmm. Look at the statistics and, re and think if this is the family and I'm underestimating the risk and I'm leaving here today not doing my job, she could be killed. Um, mm -hmm. What does my report reflect? So really it's just about articulating what you see, not overriding it by what you believe. Right. So and pers personal bias. The evidence. Yeah, personal bias is hard to separate, though. I mean, that's easier said than done for a lot of us because yeah. our biases and our predispositions are very much ingrained into our personality. Wouldn't that be fair? Yeah. Oh, very much so. And I think the more 
the more sophisticated policing gets, the more evidence-based it gets, though. So Mm -hmm. you need to anchor your opinion based on evidence more and more and more. And you need to think about what if this went to inquest? You know, what if this call goes and really, and this has happened, um, a partner of mine, 10 years after he went to a domestic, his notes got seized because that woman had been killed 10 years later. So Mm -hmm. on inquest, everything is under scrutiny, whatever call she made, she may have made five or six calls over the 10 years previously. And every officer leading up to her homicide will be put on the stand. So I think you really need to think about every call you go to, sexual assault, workplace violence, car accident, right? What happens when if some a higher uh, body is going to read my report? Will it show that I've been respectful? Right. You know, forget the body cameras. Right. I mean, that's a, that, that's a, another layer. But I mean, separate apart from body cameras, what about me? What about my integrity, right? Am I going to go home at the end of the day knowing that I cared for that child that was in the corner? Did I go out of my way to show kindness to that child? Did I do a really great thorough report? Did I do a real great thorough investigation? Whether or not I am particularly sympathetic to that topic, whatever the topic is, I think we just need to really be, you know, the utmost professional. And if that is not who you are, then go find another career. We're looking for, for professionals. So let's clarify, uh, let's sort of clear up another misconception I, I hear a lot. And uh, domestic violence um, and intimate partner violence occurs in all parts of society, at all income levels, at all income demographics. There are statistics that suggest that higher prevalence rates in some places than others. But generally, on balance, this does not exempt anybody. So can you speak to some of that uh, misconception that this is a bad neighborhood problem or, you know, uh, the pr- and how that fuels the way you respond to it when you're going to a fancy neighborhood where you're not yeah. expecting it because you've got some predetermined disposition about where this occurs. Can you speak to that? Mm-hmm. So the chief of police of Belleville had her arm broken by her husband. So that should upset any uh, pre-existing notions right she had her and she obviously and I so I guess in that demographic so you have um, a woman who understands the law mm-hmm. she understands self-defense she has a gun she has a nightstick she has pepper spray she has handcuffs um, she has her own income she's financially independent she has her own passport she has her own vehicle Um, and she stayed in a relationship, um, which I don't know the extent of her injuries other than her broken arm, but what is it, right? If it's so easy to pick up and leave, um, what is it about that, that type of relationship that she was in that kind of harm's way, having all of those, um, assets, whereas, you know, you have someone who's living in, a low income situation, they don't have the access to, to resources, they don't have their passport, maybe they don't have freedom of their of their day to go access services, they might have three kids, um, they don't have knowledge of the criminal justice system, they don't have self-defense training, they don't have any weapons. So, I mean, if, if this, um, this woman was um, afraid to come forward, uh, and she was the chief of police, then that certainly puts in perspective how difficult it is for all other women to come forward. 
Uh, I was at a lecture once and I thought it was really interesting. It was a woman in the United States. She was the city police and her husband, she was a city police officer and her husband was a traffic officer and he had been abusive during the relationship. And when she was pregnant, he abused her and she lost the child. So we know that um, um, pregnancy is a risk factor for intimate partner violence and homicide. Um, so she fell for divorce and she said, I know the day that he got the divorce papers because he kicked in my front door. She was dressed to go to work. And we know in the United States, you have a gun on your hip and you may have a throwaway piece on your ankle. So she was all dressed in her uniform, ready to go to work. Her husband kicked in the front door and she had a telephone, which we used to have those old telephones, remember Neil, that were attached to the wall. She mm -hmm. grabbed the receiver of the telephone, whacked him over the head, ran out of the house, ran down the street with her hands up yelling, somebody please help me. Okay. Now that mm -hmm. image is haunting to me. And mm -hmm. I believe that if someone kicked in her front door and she didn't recognize him, what do you think would have happened? Yeah. Yeah. She would have yeah. shot him and killed him dead. So I feel like when our hearts are involved, mm -hmm. um, there's a diff it's easy to judge people and say, so I'm, I'm kind of steering off here, but I'll get back to where I was. Yes, it happens across all demographics. It absolutely does. And do we get more calls for service? in um, a housing unit because people hear through the walls right. and we get less calls for service in, you know, the bridal path where houses are miles away from each other. So, you know, is it a matter of reporting or occurrence? We're not sure. Right. But when you think about the dynamics and how the it's really the power. So this woman, although she had a gun on her hip and she would have shot a stranger, her power perception was much lower than his and she deferred to him um, and didn't didn't use her power for whatever reason and I feel like living in an abusive situation over years mm -hmm. you have to stifle your own self-protective it gets dulled right your own self-protective instincts are dulled in order mm -hmm. that you can stay living in that home right yeah so and, and you know totally and that and that influences yeah that influences the way you perceive things and the way you see things and unfortunately that can also slow your reaction time because i think to a certain extent you don't want to believe that this will happen or right. the uh the it will never happen again line you want to believe it more than you intellectually believe it sometimes and uh, you know i'm not an expert on this but i'm sure you've you've encountered that um a fair bit where the best intention gets prioritized a little higher than the yeah. pattern of behavior, right? Yeah. The person that can hurt you the most gives you the most relief when they say, I'm sorry. And that becomes the cycle, right? So you don't want to leave your house. You don't want to uproot your kids. You don't want to leave the person that you love because 99% of the time he could be a great guy. Uh, you just don't want him to keep hitting you. Not one percenter, right? So it's really, you know, that push-pull really wears down people's ability to self-protect. And then as police officers, we go in and we say, well, ma'am, just pack, like I did, just pack up your stuff. We'll go to a shelter. And she really doesn't see the level of fear maybe, or level of risk that she's in because she's been in it so long. Right. Um, her own self-protective ability has been dulled to the point that, and living in that kind of environment with PTSD, right? There's there's sleeplessness, um, depression, right? All of those things that are 
um, hurting her ability to self-protect that she may not even realize. So it's well, not you know, until you're out of it that you can actually see what it was like in some sure. places. You're in the fog, right? And, and that's a complicated place. Uh, we're going to pivot back to uh, the police perspective again. And I, I want to introduce, and I, I keep wanting to talk about the humanity of police officers uh, who bring their own life to every call. And I, I am a, I'm not a fan of that old saying, check your life at the door. I, I don't think that works. We don't check mm-hmm. our life. We don't turn off our brain. We should sometimes, uh, but we don't because humans don't work like that. Uh, so in a second, I think, well, let's talk a little bit about the police officer reaction to what they're watching. So Tracy, we've been talking a lot about uh, the perspective of the people calling, the people involved. If we can just shift back to the perception of the police officer responding, and I know you can't speak for everybody, so uh, your perspective. I have often found that when you talk to young people that want to inter policing, there's this sense that they want to help the community. They want to get the bad guy. They want to help the good guy. And there's a whole conversation about good victims and bad victims and all those problems. But let's simplify this. There's this desire to do the do right, help justice, lock away bad people. How does that all influence officer perception when they go to the call? And it's not so plain as day. You know, there's not uh, even prior to mandatory charging. It's still got to be complicated. You want to take somebody away. So how do you separate that when you identify with the victim or you see your role as being, I should intervene here? Talk a little bit about that, that perception. Yeah, um, I, I obviously fit, fell into that category. I joined policing because I wanted to help people and, you know, just being interested in psychology and how people work and, you know. Um, and many, many, many times I have been able to speak to a victim, um, doesn't matter what kind of occurrence, um, the victim is thrilled with the level of service that they've received. I've had the pleasure of going and arresting someone who's committed that criminal offense taking them before the courts and getting them convicted. And so that's like, oh, that's like the perfect outcome. Um, I've also been, you know, called to, for example, serious sexual assaults where there is no mandatory charge policy and the victim um, has no confidence in the criminal justice system and tried to talk to the victim into, you know, giving a statement and they won't. And so you go, from, you go from that to thinking somebody just got away with a very, very serious offense. Um, I have a victim who is devastated by what happened, but uh, isn't um, in a place to take the services that are available. And so, I mean, it's two ends of the spectrum and then that can happen on the same day. <laughs> so I think in policing, and I was describing this to someone the other day that, we don't experience things that non-police officers deal with, but we compress it. We might compress 10 years of experiences into one week, right? So car fatality, you know, sudden death, fraud, break and enter, robbery, child abuse, right. you know, whatever. Found property, returning found property people. Like we do mm-hmm. a lot of things that really aren't criminally related as well. So. Right. 
I mean, I think for me, you you might have expectations from watching TV about what your day is going to be like in policing or what your career is going to be like. And some of that is true. Um, and a lot of that isn't true or it's not that way continuously. Um, I think you have to temper your expectations, do great work where you can and take a lot of pleasure and a lot of satisfaction from being able to turn somebody's shittiest day into a day that they say, you know what, that was a terrible day, but somebody took the time to sit with me and went the extra mile and drove me home and, you know, whatever, whatever you can do. So I feel like it's, it's really about, you have to be, um, reasonable in your expectations and changing the world one family or one person at a time is still changing the world right but tracy i'm going to challenge i'm going to push back a little bit here i i get i get the sentiment you're expressing but we all know or at least there's an there's a there's some level of acceptance so if you find this contentious okay uh, there's a level of cynicism that does occur in human services jobs i don't think the police are immune from it so Talk to me a little bit about that end of it. When you're frustrated, you're going to a call repeatedly and the person's saying, no, nothing's happened. No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not telling you. I'm not cooperating. At some point, the human in you is going, well, if you're not going to help yourself. Uh, talk to me about that frustration. Oh, because I think sure. it's Yeah. So when when you sit with someone and offer them services um, or you try to counsel someone and they're not interested in listening to you, I mean, you really are putting your heart, your heart and soul into it, or you should be. You're investing time and energy that you could just drive away and go give somebody a ticket if you wanted to, right? Or right. do something else, do random patrol. But, you know, as a, as a person, you really see value in trying to um, limit damage, repair damage, help people from, you know, repeating the same thing again or whatever. Um, and yeah, it does, it is like a, it can feel like a kick in the pants. And I think that that's the thing. If you become cynical and that changes your positive outlook for other people, you right. need some time off. And, and yes, that does happen. And I feel like it may not be for me as much dealing with the individual uh, members of the public. Okay. But when you're trying to rage against a machine that lets you down, that to me, the systemic failure is more damaging and i think that hurts more police officers than the actual day-to-day interactions with the public honestly because you can arrest somebody you do a great job you take them before the the criminal justice system and they are released and out and doing the same thing so you know you might have had a victim that was very um interested in talking to you you got great you built great rapport you had you got a great statement from that person and then but he's released the next day. And I think that's right. why we lose victims from phoning back as well. And sure. I think more so. So I feel like dealing with, I'm going to say, I don't want to say bad guys, but dealing with criminals is a right. joy, right? That's what right. you do. You're right. supposed to deal with criminals. You're supposed to get witness statements. And that can be fun. You can have really great people that have made kind of just dumb choices. Right. And again, that's back to your discretion. If it's not a mandatory charge and somebody's done something just kind of dumb, you can right. drive them home, right? right? Because first of all, I've made mistakes and people have helped me out. I mean, we're not here to hammer everybody, you know, to the full extent of the law. Um, So I find that less distressing than when we do get before the criminal justice system. And that's where, or even trying to make policy within policing can be very difficult. So I feel like um, 
it's a big machine and it's really hard to make commonsensical changes in a big machine that could really improve the public perception of the police. You know, I, yeah. And you know, you're right there. You're talking about taking on some very large things. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, the lived experience of people is very personal, right? So, uh, and I don't want to overemphasize lived experience against general sort of trends, but if you feel like you're in a situation, uh, perhaps you have children and that can complicate the situation, right? You have children, the justice system is going to let the person go. They got to come back. You're thinking in that position, probably eight steps down the line. And you're not thinking about the arrest. You're thinking, okay, well, eventually this person's going to come back. I can't withhold the children. I have to navigate this reality. All of those have got to be deterrents for full reporting. And would you say that those are probably good explanations or causal explanations for the, um, that dark figure that we don't know that, underreporting that occurs. Absolutely. So there's so many reasons for that. There's shame. There's um, minimization. So if you're a victim of violence, you you don't want to admit that you are to other people. There's some shame in that. There's some maybe fear. People don't want to admit it because they're afraid that it's going to escalate. So they don't say anything. Um, people may know uh, if they're in an isolated community, that they, if they come forward for help in the community, whether it's the police or whether it's shelter, that their sister-in-law works in the shelter or whatever, right? So right. people don't report for a whole bunch of reasons, but I feel like one of the big reasons is that re-victimization in the court system and um, perceived or real. Right. Um, but the word is out there that, you know, you kind of get um, maybe not treated as well as you can in the criminal justice system, you are as a as a witness, you are raked over the coals by the defense. That's their job, right. and uh, anybody who's done that once is probably not likely to want to do that again. So. Sure, but you know, I think I, I try to come back to a realistic level. We all have a job to do, and I try to do mine to the best of my ability. So that to me looks like providing my students with balanced information, not being biased in my presentation. Uh, you, you, I'm sure you encounter the same thing. Uh, the takeaway for police officers on this one is that I think there's a great deal of frustration that can occur. You can be pissed off about people that you perceive are not helping themselves. And what you're saying, what I think you're saying here is, there's a lot more going on in the background and it's incumbent on us to realize the justice system writ large might not work out the way we want, but as that first point of contact, we should do more. We should, we should find that humanity. Is that, is that the takeaway? Did I summarize you nicely there? Absolutely. I think some of the people that are calling the police, um, you know, People just want to be listened to and respected. And um, it doesn't matter if you're a, a victim or an offender. I really feel like there's a lot of value to just being, you know, in policing. You're at the you're at the front and you're the forefront of a lot of weird calls, right? <laughs> you see people in all different circumstances by accident or by their own doing. And, you know, I think you just have to just it's a journey to go through that and I mean that sounds kind of trite but it really is every day is just a different kind of day but how you approach it is really how you will enjoy or not enjoy the job and if your sole focus is to catch bad guys put them away you're missing probably 90% of policing that's a very narrow part of policing 
So I think if in policing, you're going into it thinking that you're going to be going to calls, arresting people, taking them to jail, you know, um, that's only a very small part of the job. That's about, I'm going to say 10% of the job. And the other 90% is once you've dealt with the offender uh, and they're being processed, they're going to go to court, but you have an opportunity to assist the person or the people that are left behind and really try to shift their experience and with kindness. And I think, you know, if, if you're going into policing without that understanding, it's mm-hmm. going to be very frustrating for you. You need to have... Um, you need to have the ability to talk to people and you have the, you have the joy of, of being put in people's lives at their worst day ever. So if you see that as an opportunity, you can really turn people's lives around and even in a very small way, just by being, you know, kind and responsive. And because of our positional power in mm-hmm. policing, we have positional power, you know, which is, which is given to us by the job. But we also can network as a result of that, right? We're able to get things done and help people um, get where they need to go. So I think we can use our powers for good or evil. And I think um, people who think that they're going to put a uniform on and be powerful, that's not the power we're looking for, right? right? That That is the antithesis of power. That's positional power when you're wielding your badge to get somebody to do something as opposed to using your badge to provide service to people that need it. And And, sometimes that service is arresting them. Yep. Yep. But not always. No. And when you have a position of power in society, unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way that works, I think it's no different than authority anywhere. If you're doing your job well, if you're parenting well, if you're policing well, no one's going to be happy with you all of the time. And that can't be the expectation. But I think equally, we can't expect police officers to enter this field thinking they're going to solve it. This isn't, you know, we're not going to solve, we're not going to get rid of crime. You try and stay the course and remain, uh, prevent apathy and cynicism from taking over. But I think that leads really well, because when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the impact that actually has on police officers. Um, Not just the impact, but also maybe some of the dark things that occur. And uh, I know we talked about this uh, previously, but let's explore the impact on policing, on policing officers, okay. right? So Tracy, we've been talking a lot about the way people experience the challenges with the justice system, the heavy obligation on police officers to act in an ethical way and make sound decisions and remain optimistic and not let sort of cynicism and apathy take over. Uh, But policing can take a personal toll. Uh, And I think there's plenty of statistics that show first responders are not always the best at seeking help help when they need it. So we know that they disproportionately are impacted by PTSD, uh, by mental health episodes uh, and illness. There are high rates of substance abuse. We know that the suicidal rate, the the rates of suicide is high. These are concerning uh, for people entering this field. So can we talk about what else is impacted? Because I know that we have domestic violence uh, occurrences inside of police families. You alluded to one earlier. So can we talk a little bit about power and control or what attitudinal dispositions make us at high risk? Or put yeah. Officers at high risk? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, every individual is going to be different, but statistically we do know that 
and I think about this a lot, what, what is it that is the stressful piece about policing or what is it that causes, you know, I don't know, the divorce right now, it's maybe 90% now. Um, it's very, very high. Um, you know, what is it about the debrief that involves alcohol and what is it about the very dark humor, which I think is one of those ways to attempt to um, reduce stress. Um, when I started, we had just had an employee assistance program put in place uh, and it was it was just considered a joke. People were like, you don't call them because it's not going to be confidential. And so the the ability to talk some, to somebody about mental health problems, that, that wasn't even a thing. In fact, it was deemed, you know, uh, a risk to talk to somebody about it. They'll take your gun away, you'll lose your job, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we had one of our platoon mates die by suicide. He killed himself in the police station when we were working mm-hmm. because he had, you know, kind of reached the end of his um, health benefits and saw that there was really nothing in sight for him as far as uh, support. Um, mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, obviously, you know, a whole bunch of different reasons, but he was a substance user who had underlying mental health issues. So probably something that could have been addressed had that been brought up in today's world. So I think, you know, the, the issues that create that, I don't really know if um, the job creates that. I think maybe in some cases it does because of what you see. Um, But I also think that if you have an underlying mindset or predisposition before you get on the job that is not really identified, um, it's going to be exacerbated for sure. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, we don't select police officers anymore that are sort of when we had the early days, we would select post-war military officers and turn them into police officers as enforcers. That's not really what we're looking for at all anymore. So I think, you know, um, we're looking for people who are more balanced, who are more uh, gentle, who are more emotionally aware of themselves and and very complex versus simplistic enforcers, right? That's really frowned upon now as a skill set. Well, I often I often talk about this dichotomy that exists between being an enforcer of the law and a guardian of rights, and yeah. you have both those jobs to do. Uh, you do your your as part of the social contract. The state does have police officers to enforce the the social contract, making sure people are living up to their end and being lawful. Uh, but at the same time, there are necessary moral constraints on law enforcement, and there should be. The charter gives you limitations and i think that's a good thing uh and you have to live up to your end as an enforcer but part of that is also being a guardian of people's rights and you have to be the champion of the people because you're given power and authority to do that you know i keep coming back to this though are you saying and is this your opinion that it is perhaps the type of people and the methods of recruitment from bygone eras that created some of the statistics we cite all the time and do you see that improving? Because we have often cited high suicide rates upon retirement, short life expectancies post-retirement, high suicide rates amongst police officers. So if we're getting the best of the best, why do they seem disproportionately impacted by these, these problems? Mm-hmm. Are you saying they're going I, away? or? 
I don't know. I know people are living longer past retirement now. So, you know, when I started, it was about six months on average. And now it's, you know, years, many years on retirement. Um, Yeah, so I'm not, I really don't know how to answer that, Neil. I really feel like um, it's a very individual balance. And I mean, I didn't do my full 30 years in policing. So, you know, um, because I felt like if I stayed in, it would have probably led to a heart attack for me. Right. So there is it, it did have its toll on on my longevity as a police officer. I left after 23 years because I was when I talked before about women in leadership. I don't know if it's women in leadership because I'm a woman or if it's leadership. So, I, you know, that's a hard thing to say. But to try. So I left as a detective. So I was promoted when I was in Toronto. I moved to Durham because um, a few reasons. I had twin girls. I was a single mom. There's your high divorce rate but also because I had finished a a project in the professional standards unit in Toronto, which again, when you talk about, you know, uh, coming back after doing a professional standards investigation, it's easier to make a clean break and go to a different police service. And so that's what I did. So I dropped my rank to to constable again. I got re-promoted in the Durham Regional Police. So I've been promoted twice, but only to the the same rank. Um, and I had a real, you know, I had real aspirations to learn. I, and this is just a message for everybody is that don't wait to take the training that's offered to you in policing. Take more training on your own. Um, I would take any and all training that I could. And I was very, very keen in making changes um, in the police service and specifically around domestic violence, how we respond. But I found it very, very difficult to to push against the machine. And and that's how I would feel is that I feel like we can impact um, our response, but there is still a very staid mindset. And I think that might be, um, so I guess to answer your question about suicide and all that, there is sort of this older guard that is still there that is very static. And, you know, um, so what will happen in the future? Will that rate go down? Because there are people who are more, um, you know, have higher emotional intelligence. They're more maybe um, flexible in their mindsets. I don't know if that will help or hurt. But I know recently another person that I worked with who's a younger man, he died by suicide recently too. So, you know, I, I think a lot of, um, yeah, I think it brings out the the parts of your personality that need work. Right. That might be a really great way to say it. Shift work, you know, um, lots there are many, of compromising. There are many disruptions to what one might perceive as a normal life, right? Your, it impacts yeah. your family. It impacts your routines. It impacts your sleep. Um, none of those things are easy. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to believe um, that, the future is more optimistic. And usually in life, we have moved. The trajectory of life tends to move in a better direction as we get more informed. I do know that the, the level of education, generally speaking, is increasing. And not to make that the only causal factor, but you can go right back to uh, Kohlberg's moral development. And he said one of the most predictable measures of people's moral development was level of education. So, you know, perhaps knowledge and things like this help Um it changes the mindset of what you ought to be. So uh, it's a tough one. And I, I wasn't trying to peg you to an answer because who has a crystal yeah. ball, right? Yeah, I don't know. I just know that, 
everybody deals with it differently. Um, there, I think societally there is more talk around mental health and substance use issues. So, but I still know that policing is a very tight knit community. It's a community where you see and hear things that other people don't. And so you have this own, your own still very close knit, tight family where you keep things in. And that's kind of that moral code that can lead to, um, you know, negative outcomes if it's not addressed. So balance. We leave this at balance. Ba balance is probably one of those things, right? <laughs> if you can get balance, then yeah, you're doing well. <laughs> so Tracy, earlier you said um, it's important that we work smart and not just hard. So can you elaborate on from your experience, what could we be doing better to address this whole topic we've been discussing today? I feel like, <clears throat> um, and we know this statistically, that there are calls that we go to time and time again, um, domestic violence calls. <clears throat> and we know that these are serial offenders, right? So <clears throat> typically in, in society, we would be alarmed if there was a serial sexual offender out there or, you know, a, a a uh, string of robberies with the same suspects, we would be like, we've got to get that person. But I don't feel like we're that alarmed when it's a domestic violence call. <clears throat> we call it, you know, I think, I think the inference is that it, ha it happens once or the anger isn't there that we, you know, we're ignoring the fact that it's happening time and time and time and time again. We have the same offender, the same victim and the victim over time, is more and more at risk of being more and more injured or killed. Um, one point I, I will throw in here is the risk of manual strangulation and how I didn't realize in my career how important it was to look for that. And that's also a risk for um, harm to police officers. So they found there's a, a correlation between um, men who kill police officers and men who have strangled their intimate partners. And by that, I mean either restricting the blood or the alcohol or alcohol, blood or um, uh, oxygen to the brain. And that takes a very little bit of pressure. So uh -huh. it can be just a firm handshake. And as soon as that pressure is applied, the brain is dying. And so it's really a homicide in progress until the person takes their hand off. So the brain cells never grow back. And when we think about these serial offenses taking place, many, many, many of them involve this manual strangulation. That's the ultimate, if we're talking about power and control, mm -hmm. that's the ultimate power and control is being able to take somebody's consciousness away and bring it back and take it away again and bring it back. And sometimes it does happen like that again and again. So um, the, the, I guess the ability for us to intervene um, is maybe we get one shot at it. And we talked about that earlier, but that mm -hmm. one shot coming just from a policing perspective isn't shifting away from that person returning to that relationship mm -hmm. for whatever reason, whether it's a failure in the criminal justice system, whether it's whatever. But in my work, I've done a lot of uh, kind of research and training on a family justice center model, which is a one-stop model incorporating all of our community services together. Mm -hmm. And I just really want to 
you know, encourage anyone who's thinking of getting into policing to really realize that the way forward is not in isolation as a police service. So we are a community service agency, and we know statistically that homicide risk to women drops dramatically when we have a one-stop shop location. Um, there's a model called the San Diego Family Justice Centre model, and that's being implemented. We have, I believe, one in Montreal and one in the west coast of Canada now. And that model has been proven statistically to reduce risk dramatically for homicide. So I feel like, you know, we have been doing the same thing again and again and again, expecting different results. We go to the call. Mm-hmm. We know that risk to police officers goes up every time we go to the call. Um, these are happening in the home. We're not aware of each and every time it happens, but we know that it's repetitive. We have inquests. We have the Randy Isles, Arlene May inquest. We have the Ralph and Jillian Hadley inquest. These are all Ontario cases. Um, and what comes out of our annual death review committee report every year are recommendations that we work better together with other community service agencies. So I guess what I would recommend if someone was going to interview for a a job before becoming a police officer, like your community service work or volunteer work, Mm -hmm. is understand that concept, the family justice model or collaborative model. Look at the recommendations made in the death review committee report, which is available every year, and speak to the power of working together with community service agencies to improve the support around victims of violence, but also support around the men who are our serial offenders. And historically, I think we used to try to lock them up, and we know that doesn't work. They don't get held in jail at all. So when they come out of the criminal justice system, they may be more at a loss, right? They've lost maybe their connections to friends, community employment, home, children. And so by building a circle of support around the male offenders, and this is where men can help, right? Right. Um, By building that support around them, we can actually show them where their risk lies and help them to reduce their risk of reoffending to this victim and then to any potential future victim. So rather than keep going on that hamster wheel, go to the call, go to the call, go to the call, let's put better supports around our victim so that she doesn't feel alone with her children and put better supports around our offender so he doesn't feel alone, and do it right the first time. And I feel Uh, like that is a systemic approach that is going to result in uh, better outcomes for our society. A balanced approach that considers all parts. I I almost find uh, (laughs) that we keep coming back to that same word. Uh, So, you know, I really appreciate your time. I know that earlier in the segment, and I didn't come to it because this was more interesting, we talked about the toll this takes on police officers. And really, I think the takeaway there is there's a need for balance. Uh, You had mentioned that, and I think that sometimes there's transferable knowledge. You talked about this need to have community touch points and connections. I think that's also important for officers right through their career to find balance, find means to stay connected, to have a full life, not just a police life. Uh, Understand that they're going into a difficult and demanding job, but they're still people and there's still people out there they should continue to connect with. Uh, and we'll keep using that same word again, maintain balance in their everyday sort of perspective. Is that yeah, Absolutely. Uh, if you, you need to identify yourself as a member of the community who does this, not a police officer who is a member of the community. And you need to keep your friends 
from college. You need to keep your friends in your neighborhood. You need to spend time outside of police work. You need to take painting classes. You need to take whatever, you know, things that interest you. Because historically, our members would die within six months of retirement because that was their identity. They identified only as police officers. So you need to really keep that balance and keep, you know, to keep your relationships going too. You need to, you need to remain engaged in the world, not just looking at it through a police lens. Right. Tracy, thank you so much for your time. This was not easy topic areas to discuss. They're not easy topic areas to listen to. So, uh, but I think it's a valuable part of the conversation. I think it is an essential part of policing and it is unavoidable as much as we'd like to get rid of it. Um, Yeah. I appreciate your time so much. I hope you'll come back sometime and talk to me about other things. But in the meanwhile, I'm going to give you the last word. Do you have any quick messages for my students? Uh, Any advice you'd like to share with them before I let you go today? I would just say if you are interested in becoming a police officer, go for it. It is a fantastic career. If um, If you are drawn to people, if you are drawn to making change in the community for the right reasons. This is the career for you. There are so many facets in policing. If you are interested in a certain area and you change your mind, you can just, you know, change an area of um, interest within the same employer. So I feel like um, there's so much good that you can do and don't let anybody tell you, oh, you're not, tall enough oh they're only hiring male whites they're looking for this or they're looking for that just put your application in um and um my my best advice if you are you know proceeding with your application look at the um the pillars so look at the um areas that the, the your particular police service identifies as you know integrity uh problem solving all of those skill sets and start to develop um, stories from your own life experience that can show that you have those skills. I think that's really a long, um, a long um, venture. And if you start it the week before your interview, you won't have those good examples. So that's just a practical tip. Look at what your police service is asking for, and then start to have real life examples about how you meet that adequacy standard. Tracy, thank you, thank you so much for being with us. It has been fun. We'll talk again soon. Thank you very much, Neil.